Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 23, Atragon Mini-Analysis. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the curator of the Vogue Vault, Nathan Marchand. The Daimajin days got off to a good start with my friends Joe and Joy Metter, despite Murphy's Law mucking things up at every turn. Lecture me about Edward Murphy after the show. Anyway, we had problems with our new microphones, interruptions from Joe and Joy's dogs, background noise I had to clean up, an internet outage, and to be honest, I'm not sure all of it was accidental. Wouldn't you like to know? Besides, Big Brother is... listening. Outside of the show, listeners, the board of directors has made some interesting decisions. They reinstituted the mask mandate, which I'm not a fan of. Everyone working on the island has new color-coded jumpsuits. And Jimmy and I have to wear bubblegum pink. Also, they finally allowed Zilla Jr. to come on the island, much to the delight of Dr. Nick Totopoulos and Heat and the consternation of 90-plus percent of the island's tourists. Like a lot of new kaiju arrivals, he was kept on the island's beta site for evaluation before being allowed on the main island. Zilla's threat level was determined to be an 8.5 out of 10, which is more than I can say for his parent. Personally, I like Zilla Jr. and thought it was unfair to not allow him on the island. I mean... He did rule over another monster island that has since become the gamma site for this operation. It's strictly a scientific facility, though. Yes, Jimmy, for now. (sighs) The board's other big decision was one I could get behind. They hired the famous Captain Douglas Gordon to be the island security chief. I can tell you Ozaki and his EDF mutant security force were delighted by this news. After Operation Final War, like a lot of veterans, Gordon was out of work and developed a bit of a drinking problem. But he sobered up and the board was kind enough to hire him. They have another big announcement? No, Jimmy, I told you... Jimmy, are you sure the board's not yanking your chain? Godzilla vs. Kong premiering here on the island at the Denim Theater in November? One night only? Special guests? This is crazy talk. I don't care if the ice cream bunny is on the board and told you himself. There's no way. I don't need an invitation because it's not happening. I think they know it won't be me eating his words. 
Anyway, on to the topic at hand. I'm continuing my mini-sode series on classic Toho Tokusatsu films. Today will be one of my absolute favorites, Atragon. Yes, Jimmy, I know you love the Gotengo. I heard all about you taking it for a joyride when Kaiju Weekly read your feedback on their show a few weeks ago. Speaking of which, I'll be reading feedback from our listeners today. Let's get started. Released a few months after Matango, the hastily but impeccably made Atragon stands alongside Ashira Honda's war epics Eagle of the Pacific from 1953 and Farewell Rabal from 1954 as a filmic anti-war statement. Indeed, besides Honda, many of those involved with the film, including screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa and composer Akira Ifukabe and several actors and technicians, seem to be channeling the same opinion as Peter H. Brothers says, quote, that warmongering, saber-rattling, and all-out military action does not lead to glory, but instead to devastation and ruin, end quote. Beneath its Jules Vernean science fiction surface beats the heart of a story commenting on Japan's resurgent nationalism of the 1960s. Loosely based on the militaristic 1899 novel The Undersea Warship by Shunro Oshikawa, the film finds the world besieged by the Atlantis-like Mu Empire, whose technology, arrogance, and power hunger know no bounds. Indeed, their goal is to, uh uh-huh, take over the world. Of course! Jimmy... I'm starting to think you invite M. Bison to the island just to troll me. How does this big chin despot get the board's permission to come here? (sighs) Whatever. Just get him out. Picking up where I left off, Kusumi, played by Ken Uohara, a former rear admiral in the Japanese Imperial Navy, says he knows a man who could help them. Captain Jinguchi, played by Jun Tazaki. This man and his crew have isolated themselves on a secret island base and constructed a super submarine called the Gotengo, which means Roaring Thunder in Japanese, although it was renamed Atragon in the dub, that could defeat the Mu. Kasumi travels to the island along with Junguji's young daughter, Makoto, played by Yoko Fujiyama, and several reporters to appeal to the captain. But the old soldier refuses to help. It is not until Makoto is kidnapped by the Mu that he realizes his nationalism is misplaced and launches the Gotengo against the world's undersea enemy. Atragon was released at a time when old imperial nationalism was reasserting itself in Japan. Novelist Fusao Hayashi published Affirmation of the Greater East Asian War, a controversial tract that reiterated the belief that Imperial Japan's wartime conquests were noble efforts to, as the nation's slogan said, quote, liberate the Asian people from the Western powers, end quote. He validated the philosophies of French conservatives like future Tokyo Governor Shintaro Ishihara and author, and later would-be revolutionary, Yukio Mishima. Many Japanese resented the nation's defeat and saw the U.S. occupation as a humiliation, so they longed to reestablish the former glory of the empire. 
This came as a pushback against the growing pacifistic movement of the 1950s, a period often called, quote, a time of atonement, end quote, when Japanese intellectuals began to debate, quote, the nature and extent of war guilt, end quote, according to Beatrice Trafalt. The clash between these movements came to a head during protests over the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty in 1959-1960, just a few short years before Atragon was released. This conflict was embodied by the frequent newspaper stories of Japanese holdouts and stragglers in the South Seas throughout the years following the war. While some had been left behind accidentally or were prisoners of the Soviet Union, many were loyalists who were ignorant of Japan's surrender or who refused to accept it. Some of these men, such as 2nd Lieutenant Hiru Onoda, were venerated as heroes by the Japanese public. Upon their return, many of these holdouts received congratulatory letters and proposals for marriage or adoption. How were you a holdout for the war in space? Never mind. Tell me later. Anyway, these stragglers represented now-lost ideals for many Japanese. Trafalt writes, quote, These individuals missed the end of the war altogether. Fear, shame, and disbelief caused them to hide on the periphery of battlefields and on the edge of survival for years and sometimes decades. They had little or no contact with the outside world. They were thus mostly unaware of the developments in the post-war world and within Japan. The stragglers were preserved, as it were, as wartime figures. They were dressed in makeshift uniforms, spoke in stilted military language, they often cited the importance of loyalty to ideals that had long since been abandoned by the population as a whole, end quote. In Atragon, Honda symbolizes these conflicting cultural forces most vividly with the film's three central characters, Jinguji, Kasumi, and Makoto. Captain Jinguji represents Japan's old guard, the nationalists who wanted to reclaim the country's lost glory. Honda said, quote, There were some Japanese people who felt like Jinguji. However the world turns, even when confronted, they still cannot shake loose their pride, end quote. Jinguji is a renegade idealist in stark contrast to the anarchism of his immediate inspiration, Captain Nemo of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You have excellent taste in literature. As I was saying, like Hiro Onoda, who would become the face of Japanese stragglers, Jinguji wears an impeccably tended uniform, marches with a perfect cadence, and insists he has been carrying out his patriotic duty. While the war ended 20 years before, he says, our corps hasn't surrendered yet. Later, he goes from a straggler to the voice of post-war Japanese nationalists. Kasumi tells him, all has changed, to which he shouts, I'll change it again with Atragon. Such revolutionary sentiment was what compelled Mishima to lead a failed coup in 1970, during which he committed seppuku. After an argument with Makoto, who tells her father she hates him for refusing to help the world, Susumu, played by Tadao Takashima, calls him, quote, a ghost-wearing rusty armor named patriotism, end quote. Although, nationalism would be a better word. While holdouts were initially known as motonianhe, or former Japanese soldiers, Zansunhei, or surviving soldiers, or, more negatively, Heizanhei, or defeated soldiers, by the mid-1950s, they were often described as Ikite Ita Errei, or living spirits of the war dead. 
Susumu's insult is likely inspired by that term, but as Trafalt says, it is drenched in irony given that, quote, Erre is composed of the Chinese characters for hero and ghost, implying respect and encompassing notions of self-sacrifice, end quote. Jinguji is an old warrior shielding himself from family, friends, and foes alike with outdated ideology. Kasumi, on the other hand, is the Japan that moved on after the war. While he served his country well, he regrets the war and as a businessman has labored to rebuild the nation for a peaceful and prosperous future. 20 years after the war gave us time to think, he tells Jinguji. He has embraced Japan's new constitution, wherein the nation renounces war and sees Jinguji's nationalism as nonsense. Like Honda, his concern was no longer, quote, what about Japan, end quote, but, quote, what about humanity, end quote. Just as Japan now saw itself as a member of the world community, so Kasumi sees a, quote, global point of view, end quote, in the present crisis, which Jinguji refuses to do. Yet he also keeps the location of the captain's base secret out of loyalty to the man. He pulls rank with Jinguji's spy to get him to talk, but he tells the captain to drop it when he calls him Admiral. The only piece of his old armor he ever puts on is a navy hat he wears during the Gotengo's operation against the Mu. In other words, he is not beyond using the prowess he developed during the war to defeat the new enemy threatening the world. If Honda had an ideal soldier in mind, he would be Kasumi. Makoto embodies Japan's post-war generation, or as Thomas Schnellbacher says, she is, quote, a true child of the post-war, end quote. She does not understand her father or his ideals. The war and the empire are only history to her. He adheres to what she sees as pointless personal honor. Jinguji looks away from her when reunited because familial expectation was seen as effeminate. In other words, weak. The film reveals nothing about her mother, although Brothers theorizes that, given Makoto's exotic features, she was a native girl living on Saipan when Jinguji was stationed there. Exasperated, Makoto says she is a, quote, child orphan by war, end quote, because her father, though alive, is consumed by stubborn imperialism. The father she dreamed about, the war hero she thought she knew, is what she prefers. Jimmy, save it for your memoir. It is. I'll ghostwrite it for you if you want. If for no other reason than to learn how you survived the war in space. Dagnabbit! Anyway, Makoto's struggles mirror the real-life difficulties faced by the families of Japanese stragglers upon their return. Many wives had remarried believing their husbands to be dead. In fact, in 1975... Teruro Nakamura, the last straggler, was reunited with a son he never met, and it did not go well. Honda makes effective use of visual symbolism in this scene where Jinguji speaks with Makoto on the beach. Behind Makoto, as Adam Noyes explains, is a peaceful lake with gentle waves lapping onto the shore. He says, quote, What the water represents is how Japan has changed, the motion of time of how things have changed in 20 years, and that's her. She's lived in this new Japan. All she knows is peace and everyone working together, end quote. This is contrasted with the stationary, unmoving trees behind her father. 
This signifies Shunguchi's obstinate belief in old Japan traditions. Quote, the idea of ultra-nationalism, the dangerous sort of nationalism where the only thing he's concerned about is Japan and Japan alone, which just isn't feasible, end quote. This comes after a scene where he stands up to Kasumi, his superior officer, and refuses to fight the Mu. But it is his daughter saying she hates him for this refusal that finally breaks down his walls. He meets Susumu, who earlier called him war crazy, gives the photographer a picture of himself and an infant Makoto, and tells the young man to take care of his daughter. It is a subtle blessing from him as her father to a man who clearly knows his daughter better than he does. It is during this scene that the shot reverses with the lake now behind Jinguji, symbolizing his change of mind. Makoto tells Jinguji he is no better than the Mu Empire, which is a rare moment where the captain's stoicism is broken. It is a fitting comparison since Mu is modeled heavily after Imperial Japan. In fact, Brothers argues that the red-haired Mu Empress evokes Emperor Hirohito and the boisterous high priest represents Prime Minister Hideki Tojo. The priest even declares at one point, we are the superior race. They believe it is their destiny and right to rule the surface because it once belonged to them, saying it is their colony, which is very specific language not typically used by invaders in American films. It echoes wartime Japan's imperialism. However, this arrogance is their Achilles heel. As Brothers writes, quote, This absolute belief in their supremacy and confidence in their abilities over a far superior opponent has definite tie-ins to Japan's own swaggering self-assurance when confronting the Allies in World War II. And as with Japan's wartime government, had its leaders been reasonable and agreed to capitulating when the chance came, they could have survived near annihilation, end quote. The Mu are a superstitious yet scientifically advanced civilization, a strange combination that also seems in line with the Japanese empire. It was state Shintoism that drove the nation to such extremes as kamikaze attacks. For the fanatical military leadership, World War II was a holy war, and they would not be defeated. Honda symbolizes this with a brilliantly composed shot of the high priest dismissing the report of two agents saying Gotengo's attack is imminent. They are framed within the jaws of a statue of Manda, their vanquished serpent god, as if it is swallowing them. Their empire is dying, and its beliefs are killing them. It is fitting, then, that Jinguji allows the Empress to die with her people. He understands her because he came from a culture that preferred honorable death to shameful defeat. It creates a somber ending amid the spectacle that echoes that of Godzilla 1954, one that is, as Brothers puts it, quote, sad but not maudlin, poignant but not pitying, end quote. I'm amazed Jet Jaguar knows that much about Seatopia, but that bot is full of surprises. Finally, listeners, Atragon is a film deeply rooted in the Japanese national spirit and the nation's post-war history. According to Schnellbacher, this is a story that seeks to, quote, reconcile progressive moments, innovation, reform of political values in line with the global mainstream, with conservative ones, appreciation of Japanese virtues and Japanese achievements, even when formerly placed at the service of the wrong values. 
The reconciliation is aided by attributing one destructive aspect of the past, imperialism, with another, military technology, to an equally fantastic toy-like invention, end quote. It is for these reasons, along with Eiji Tsuburaya's incredible special effects, that this ranks highly among Honda's genre films. Now it's almost time for listener feedback, but first, after these messages, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Anderson from Nerd Chapel. Nerd Chapel is all about bridging the gap between nerd culture and the church. This is done by an online and social media presence, a physical presence at comic, anime, and gaming conventions, and with tabletop game nights in Spring Lake, Michigan. I've also co-written two devotionals for Nerds and Geeks with Nathan Marchand, 42 Discovering Faith Through Fandom, and the new 42 God Terraforms All Things. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and please explore the website nerdchapel.com for more information. Welcome back, Kaiju lovers! We have two emails for today. They come from two patrons I've jokingly called the MIFV stands, Travis Alexander and Michael the Kaiju Groupie Hamilton. Yeah, let's not start another Twitter war. You keep this up, he won't interview you on his new podcast. He can't afford you? Oh, boy. And now... Assuming Jimmy doesn't mute me, here is Michael's email. He writes, You, sir, are a god! Bloat my ego a little bit there. Sure, all right, continuing on. But not in the biblical sense. Thank you for that clarification, Michael. More like in the Lost Kingdom of Moo sense, lol. (laughs) I picked the right movie to read this email, apparently. Seriously, the show was always on rotation here at Outpost 304. I've visited that outpost. Tis a silly place. The recent episode with Jack G-Man Hudgens where you guys discuss Gorath was really interesting. It even prompted me to revisit the film to see if I can watch it, not as a kaiju fan, because there's very little kaiju action to be had, but as a fan of what Honda, Kimura, and Okami were trying to accomplish. I'll say that the second time didn't leave me as underwhelmed. Thank you and Jimmy for your friendship and all you do for the kaiju community at large. It's a pleasure serving alongside you. Your toku brother in arms, Michael Hamilton, the kaiju groupie and host of the kaiju groupie podcast. Shameless plug. Side note, Jimmy needs to lay off the Jack Daniels and work on building his own version of the Gotango if he's too scared to try and acquire the original. Just saying. Yeah, I wouldn't appreciate being accused of being a drunkard either, especially when it comes to working in your garage. That's true. You have been really busy working on Mechanicong, so it's not like you can stop what you're doing and build your own little version of the Gotango. That's also a good point. You've already built your own version of the Gotango. It was the Goten, which, let's be honest... Saved us all from the Messiah 13 aliens during the infamous war in space. Yeah, but don't let it go to your head. But thank you, Michael. I appreciate what you had to say there. We work really hard here on Monster Island to make as 
good a content as we can, not only for all of the tourists here on the island, but for all the rest of you listening all around the world, and who knows, maybe on a few other planets as well. And now, Travis writes, Hello, kaiju lovers! I couldn't resist. Just wanted to say how much I enjoy listening to the MIFV podcast. In the ever-growing pool of kaiju podcasts, it stands out because of the amount of deep research that goes into each episode. We have a saying on the Kaiju Weekly podcast when we dive deep into researching a topic. We call it going full march and. Just uh, let me inject myself here a little bit. I am tickled to death that I have inspired a catchphrase on another podcast. Yeah, don't poke a hole in my ego and let the air out just yet, Jimmy. Anyway, Travis continues. I have to admit that I actually find myself enjoying the mini-analysis episodes the most. It has greatly improved my understanding of kaiju and tokusatsu films and helped me grasp the context in which these movies were made. The witty humor you add to each episode keeps the podcast from being too dry. Listeners can have fun while learning. Let me inject myself here a little bit. If that's the case, you would have loved me when I was in grad school and I was working as a graduate teaching assistant. I did the exact same thing in my classes. My students loved me for doing that. Anyway, back to his letter. All of that said, I have a suggestion for a future episode. I suggest an analysis of Yongari, 1967. It's easy to see why most people write the film off as a Korean knockoff of Godzilla, which in many ways it was. However... I think many kaiju fans would benefit from a look at the historical context of the film. The movie gives us a glimpse into the anxieties of South Koreans in the years post-Korean War. One film historian said that Yongari captured the fears in the same way that Gojira captured the fears of a post-war Japan. That's not to mention the interesting behind-the-scenes story, its connection to Daie and Toei, and how the original film is now lost. There's a lot of angles to approach a review of this movie. Which, I'm going to inject myself here again. You'll be happy to know, Travis, that that movie is in a proposal I plan to give to the board of directors for a future season of the show. And since you're speaking as highly of it as you are, perhaps I'll put your name down as my guest tourist to be on that episode. Might be a little while, but why not commit to it now? It'll save us the trouble later. Anyway, he finishes by saying, thanks for always supporting us here at Kaiju Weekly and keep up the great work. And remember to help control the kaiju population by having your monster spayed or neutered. Travis Alexander, Kaiju Weekly host. Okay, I do want to say we don't typically talk about spaying and neutering the kaiju around here. One, it's a little bit awkward. Two... How do you propose we do that? That's going to take one heck of an anesthetic. And I'm not sure there's enough tranquilizer in the world to take out one of these kaiju, let alone all of them. Just saying. But regardless, thanks for writing in. If you'd like us to read your thoughts on Atragon or any of the films or other topics we've discussed on the show so far, DM us on any of our social media or email us. All of our contact info will be in the credits. Atragon is an amazing film and should be seen by anyone who loves tokusatsu or, heck, anime fans. It's had a huge impact on Japanese pop culture. 
Still hurting for fan mail, Jimmy? <sighs> Speaking of feedback, since September has a fifth Wednesday and it's our first anniversary, we'll have a special bonus episode to celebrate. As part of it, we need all of you kaiju lovers to send us feedback about your favorite moments from the first year of the show. It can be written or audio. We'll read your letters and play your audio on the air. The deadline for the anniversary feedback is Sunday, September 20th, 2020. Don't miss it. And now we come to a very important segment of MIFV, the Patreon shoutouts. Go show! Travis, Alexander, Michael, Hamilton, Danny, Damana, author of the Godzilla novelization project, Eli, Harris, Chris, Cook, host of the One Cross Radio podcast, Bex from Redeemed, Otaku, thanks for your support. You too can get this and other great perks by supporting MIFV on Patreon, starting at just $3 a month. A link to our Patreon will be in the show notes. On the next episode of the Monster Island Film Vault, my friends Joe and Joy will return to continue the Daimajin days by discussing Return of Daimajin. Jimmy, if you keep doubting Joy's sword fighting skills on the air, well, she won't appreciate it. And then, listeners, I'll be doing another special expanded mini-analysis with the board's blessing, on 1964's Space Monster Dogra. And my guest will be Michael Hamilton. It'll actually be his third visit to the island, but his first appearance on the show. Yeah, Jimmy. Makes you wonder. So, until next time, kaiju lovers. Cue credits! Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is themonsterisla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Sarax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcasters. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to spread the word about the show. You can also support MIFV on Patreon. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! Sayonara!